This is the podcast between an old school mentor and a digital mentee on managing and or working with people, navigating a career, growing profits, and not killing your coworkers along the way. Now let's join the consultant, Hayden Shaw, and the millennial who fixes Hayden's iPhone, Seth Tower Heard. Hey, welcome to <laughs> episode zero. It's a little rough. I'm making sure I've got the um, <laughs> title we, we landed on. Did we wind up on the consultant and the millennial? Is that where we landed? Yeah, I thought that was great. Okay, there, there we are. Welcome to the consultant and the millennial, the podcast between an old school mentor and a digital mentee on managing, working with people, navigating a career, growing profits, and not killing your coworkers along the way. Uh, my name is Seth Tower Heard, serial entrepreneur, uh, former major market broadcaster, and a guy that got a text message in um, August of 2015 that just said, hey, call me about social networking. I got a book coming out. And I don't even know if you put your name on it. I probably didn't put my name on no. it because, yeah, people only people who understand what to do on their phone would know to put your name on a text message. So, yeah, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and then it uh, it kicked off um, one of the most um, beneficial and important relationships in my life and career that started with me driving uh, an hour and a half to teach Hayden how to put Skype on his laptop and his Microsoft Surface. Um, and That's so, right, so I could do an interview. <laughs> so you could, because I set up all these podcast interviews for you, and you're like, wait, where where does this this thing go? And so that's how we came together, and we would start having these conversations um, and I'd be going, man, like I really wish my friends could hear this. Like they could really, really benefit from um, just like, like the wisdom that Hayden throws away and doesn't even realize he has um, people would be dying for when they're facing problems in their careers. So uh, if I can just set you up a little bit here, my friend, uh, you have helped Microsoft, the Atlanta Falcons, um, Bear, the medical company, BP, Edward Jones, Hyatt Hotels, um, on the nonprofit and international side, World Vision, the international nonprofits, and uh, you know companies like Banco Nacional in uh, Costa Rica uh, work through essentially their people and management problems. And you got into this whole thing um, because you had some guy just totally throw you under the bus and you're like 23 years old, right? Didn't he just say, well, you basically just can't trust these, these young kids to get anything done? Was that more or less the sentiment that drove you towards consulting? Uh, well, that was what got me interested in both the generational topic because he thought generational stuff was completely an excuse for lazy young people to uh, rationalize a way why they wouldn't work like he did. And I realized that, hey, management was a lot bigger part of nonprofit world than what I was told when I was in my master's. And so I started reading management books like crazy just to survive. So between those two things, those two jobs, I started, uh, I started becoming a fan. Um, and so you went into this, you've been in front of uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people um, talking through management and specifically um, gener generational stuff as of late has been like a, a really big thing is, um, you know, I'm, I was referred to the other day as a gray haired millennial because I'm 34. And, um, so like the old, cause you said there's like old middle and young millennials, right? <laughs> there are, there are, you know, 20, 18, 20 years, it gives you a lot of room. And so, you know, what you grew up with isn't quite the same thing as what my 20 year old daughter is you know growing up with the things that shaped her and i'm not just talking about technology one episode we'll talk about that everybody thinks oh it's technology that changes it now the most important research is on generations 
it's not technology at all that shapes a generation. It's technology that accelerates generational characteristics and value shifts that are already there. Technology is not what determines a generation because every generation has had different technology than the one before it. So that's one of the big myths of generations. That's another topic, another day. Okay. Um, by the way, this is episode zero, so we're just totally shooting from the hip. Um, we'll be back in a week with episode number one with um, one of the top, young, the top young CEOs in the country on um, building a company culture that uh, attracts and, and retains people. Um, and somebody that interviewed me... <laughs> didn't hire me. Um, I wrote a very nasty letter about the interview process. So we wound up being friends. Um, so that's, and by the way, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that for your career development. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Telling off a company that doesn't hire you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah. So that's not an official recommendation, but it worked for Seth. You know, I, you know, my mom would tell me always growing up, like, don't burn a bridge, don't burn a bridge. I found that I'm both better at um, burning things and somehow reconstructing them out of the ashes. Yeah, that's great. Than the average Joe. Um, so we're going to get into, uh, into six pieces of information here that can help you as we just shoot from the hip from episode number one here. So it's the six, um, what was the list again? Oh, it's the six problems your organization company has to solve if it's going to be solvent. Um, in the next 10 years. Okay. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into it. And um, I, I, I don't actually know all these, so go for it. What's the, what's the first piece we're working with here? Okay. So we're talking about kind of what's the, what's the cutting edge in generations, what we're focused on with this list. So there's certain generation problems organizations are going to have to solve going forward. So I'd say the last 10 years that I've been primarily focused on generational differences in the leadership and management work and coaching that I do, and you know, the books that I've written, having to post articles, all that stuff. Um, it's been a, a, as much about the millennials are here, let's interpret them, let's break through the stereotypes, let's use real research and data, instead of you heard somebody who met somebody who heard about a millennial who did this. And now you've got 80% of the millennials saying, we're not like those other 20% who also drive us crazy. Simon Sinek <laughs> does a video that goes viral where he basically explains the millennials by saying their parents messed them up. Companies, you're just going to have to learn to live with them. See millennials, it's not your fault. And the millennials just were like, what are you doing, dude? That's not helping. And so there was a lot of backlash to that video and a lot of older generations went, that's so true. Anyway, We've, we've done this whole awareness thing for 10 years, and most people are aware that the millennials are here. Some of them are starting to get a little gray and, um, you know, um, settling down into the next stage of life. And so what do we, what is really the, what are the questions that people are asking? What are the things that people are going to have to do? And generational stuff is no longer optional because the millennials are now reshaping organizations just like the Xers did. Um, which first, by the way, episode two, it's a, it's literally like a, about as millennially millennial company as you could possibly have. Like, you know, like the movie stereotypes only in a good way, uh, happy medium out of, of Des Moines, Iowa is what, you know, who we're going to have next. And they are just, I mean, they millennial so hard. It's um, the wheels are going to fall off and, and they're killing it. They're making, a, they're, they're growing like crazy because of it. Well, and more, Today, we would say, today, all of the generational X characteristics that made boomers and traditionalists mad when the Xers first came into the, 
into the job market. You know, uh, Fortune magazine's got one of them on the cover in 93, making uh, basically going, they're bizarre. Everything that the Xers came along and demanded has slowly moved into the way we do things. So today, none of that stuff is even surprises us because we adjusted. And 20 years from now, we'll be saying the next thing about the next generation and the millennials would have reshaped the world. Point of it is, since the millennials are the major part of your future workforce, um, your managers say the wrong thing to them. you got to solve that problem. Your managers say the wrong thing um, far more often than they realize. Um, and you don't even know what ticks your millennials off and why they go work for um, companies like Happy Medium. <coughs> Sorry, allergies, and help them grow rapidly. Your millennials don't want to stay. Many of them are staying. Um, more of them don't want to say, you can't hire good ones. Um, now, some of the organizations may be doing okay hiring good ones. They do have to work someplace. Their parents um, finally say, here's what you're going to have to do. But in terms of hiring the really good ones, um, they talk on blogs about what they want, and it's often not the blogs and glass door, and it's often not what, um, what large organizations are offering. And many, I just got an email from a guy in a blue-collar kind of company, manufacturer company, said, we can't even hire him. We go to job fairs, and they won't even talk to us. So your book didn't help me because you actually have to have some before <laughs> sticking points helps. So what do we do? And so it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem of transferring knowledge. The boomers are leaving and most organizations are transferring knowledge like they did 25 years ago. And we're talking about completely different species. Um, your organization makes decisions in a way that favors hierarchy instead of group participation and you think you may have changed because you ask people's opinions before you tell them what you're going to do. But most organizations haven't made significant shifts in their, in their um, decision-making process. And that's a huge barrier to moving forward. And ironically, you don't fire fast enough. You've got some new employees and the only way they're going to be worth something is to be fired more quickly than you're firing. You're too nice because your managers don't know what to do. And HR is a little worried they're going to get in trouble. You know, and you, you had to walk me through that with my own company um, where it was, I'd picked up somebody who'd been through a season of unemployment for a project manager position uh, on a freelance gig to see how it was going. And I, I don't think she wanted to stay with me at all. And I was like, man, she's terrible. Um, but I like, I, you know, and I have a hard time turning her out on the street. It's like, well, maybe she'll get a little better. Maybe she'll get a little better. And you just kept saying, fix your hiring decision faster. Um, you, there's nothing you're going to do to pull this thing out. Um, like she just doesn't have the skill set. She's rude to your other employees and, you know, and you can endure that for a little while, but the number one reason people leave their uh, job, leave any job because they don't like their boss. Probably the number two reason is because, um, they get sick of cleaning up after idiots. I mean, that, that's anecdotal data, but I mean, we, we, we've <laughs> no, all seen you know, that, right? that'd be my observation. I've coached about 30,000 managers through the years. And I, I think that's, I think that's accurate. I'll give you one more. People lie, people, it catches up with them. If you're a person that isn't doing anything, is that producing anything? It takes between six months and 18 months, depending on the nature of the job for people to, to catch you. And I've run into some people who had employees like that person who really wasn't doing anything. And because they worked remotely and virtually uh, on projects, it was hard to tell until, um, um, you found out from the clients that things weren't getting managed. Um, and so suddenly, you know, you, you don't know right off the bat. 
And so sometimes people have to quit because they are running from their lack of results. And um, they, you know, it's kind of, they just, they, they switch to another job before they, before they really get busted. You know what? I, I'm, I'm pointing four fingers back at myself here. Okay. Cause I did, I did the same thing with my own company. I met with a um, you know, potential client and walked them through some of the website issues of why they weren't um, converting. Right. And the business owner told me, I think my IT guy's ripping me off. Okay. Well fire him right now. <laughs> like I will wait, go fire him and maybe we'll go get a good lunch. So you can feel a little bit like, He's downstairs. Go do it. And it, it's so easy when it's not you to pull the trigger on that. It's like, well, we, I mean, if I don't know what he's doing, how do, what, what, that's right. And so it's easier to be replaced. And it's like, no, no, just do it. No, it's easier with IT because now that, in that guy's area of technical specialization, he would have known exactly how to fire because he would have known the conversation to have. But to those of us old school, non digital native people, um, IT seems something close to a shaman magic or having a dragon of your own in Game <laughs> of Thrones. And so people with dragons, how, what, do I, how do, what do I know uh, whether or not you're doing a good job? You have your own freaking dragon. <laughs> so, uh, so bottom line, you got, if you want to keep your good employees, particularly millennials, you got you to cycle through the, the, the ones that are not doing the job. You got to get them out of there. Um, and I, you know, I, I found that, that firing somebody is sort of like, like ending a, you know, romantic relationship. It's just the first one's going to be hard. And after you've done three or four, it, you gotta be okay. Uh, I mean, you, you're just, you're going to be terrified the first few times you do it. Um, if you haven't been in that position where it's like, you know, HR has always done it for you or something like that. If it's, if it's you for the first time, you just, you just gotta, you know, practice your little speech, bring them in, um, and, and let them know and get them out of there so they can process. That's right. The absolute best, um, the absolute best thing you can do for a lot of folks is to help them go work someplace else so that they say, oh, this is not good because they get by with it and they know it's not good. But because nobody's calling them on it, they think, well, I guess it's OK. And one of these days we can talk about this. Your floor sets the performance of the entire organization more than your ceiling. So the single fastest way you can increase performance in an organization is to fire underperformers um, because it raises everybody between five to 20% in productivity because they now have a new floor. The lowest performing person in every organization is the, is the performance floor. And if you have some people that ought to be fired, uh, my IT guy is ripping me off. Everybody else uses that IT person as their baseline for how low they can go before they're truly a jerk. And um, you need to raise the floor and you'll raise everyone's performance. So somebody, somebody who would be average um, thinks I can sneak an hour of Netflix in an hour every afternoon because this IT guy just keeps saying he's quote unquote updating the website. He's literally doing nothing. He's reselling stuff on eBay. Um, and I know he's doing it and the CEO, you know, the, the boss doesn't know he's doing it. So, well, I guess I ought to just, I ought, I ought to match the level of performance. You know what? And, and Seth, people with integrity, people who have, you know, some work ethic and some character to them, they won't do that. They won't do an hour of Netflix. They might, but here's how they rationalize it with integrity. Here's what they say. I don't do that every day like the IT person does. I only do it when I'm tired or I only do it when 
the well, I need to reset because I'm that's not right. People in marketing were being jerks to me. It was a nasty meeting, and I just need some me time. And I don't do what they do. And so you suddenly set a very low barrier, and they use that person. So basically, you only get the performance you want on the days when they haven't fought at home, they've had a good night's sleep, they're <laughs> feeling great, and the line at Starbucks was not too long. And there was and so, no red lights. <laughs> there were no red lights. So you get their, you get the, the performance you think you're paying for two days a week. And because that bottom performer sets a standard so much lower that everyone has a rationalization. Even the people of higher integrity can rationalize their lower energy or their lower performance as, well, at least I'm not them. And so you literally raise all boats by um, raising the tide of what the minimum standard is. <laughs> and I helped one organization identify the 10 lowest performers. And it sounds so horrible, but we just started one at a time. Start with the lowest and work your way up. And it, they literally doubled. They, 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 they got to a bill, went from half a million to a billion dollars in sales in five years. Holy and cow. half of that was that they dealt with their lower performers. So you can think of this as like fantasy baseball, in reverse. <laughs> it, 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 yes. Let's play a game where we get the managers together and draft our 10 biggest idiots. Well, you know what? That's exactly what it is. And you can see it in, you can see it in teams. You get a, you get a, you get a top flight player and then people begin to believe that they get some hope. Now I know, I know, I know. Um, nobody in Miami is going to like it after I say this, but when Cleveland first – Cleveland was a beautiful team for people like me who were Bulls fans because you were guaranteed two wins. Every time you played them, you'd get a win. And, um, you know, they're like, hey, I'm a professional player. I'm a professional ball player, even though I know I wouldn't start on other teams. You draft LeBron and people get hope, and then suddenly you start raising the minimum standards, and uh, people start seeing that, hey, this is not acceptable anymore. And it takes a couple of seasons and you turn, you turn the team around. And so you got to have hope. If you, what happens is managers after a while don't believe there's anything else we can do. They lose hope. If you don't have hope, you're done. So LeBron gave hope to Cleveland and to the team. And once there's hope, then you can raise the lower standards. If managers can't look it in the eye and go, we can do this, then they don't have any reason to give people uh, – they don't believe it enough to push. When managers lose hope, they don't push hard enough and they let the standards set themselves. So let me, let me recap the story you just told, right? Yep. Company you were working with. The fact that they wouldn't get rid of 10 people who didn't need to be there. Well, they actually, in a, plan, in, a, in a plan of 500, uh, they had about 25, but keep going. Okay, so 25. It was costing them a quarter million dollars. Uh, it was costing them a quarter of a billion dollars. A quarter of a billion dollars. Now, there were some other things that had to happen. One of them was they got one of the best presidents in terms of just raw management talent and intuition I've ever worked with. I mean, he just knew what to do with the ball. He was kind of the equivalent of LeBron James. And I know everybody doesn't get one of those. But because he came in and gave people hope, he pulled that executive leadership team up to a new standard. And then the best performers in the company began to go, yeah, we're going to do something instead of decline year after year. And the lower performers then became nasty, mean, because they were fighting for their lives. It was Game of Thrones down on the shop floor. And then as they just, as we slowly gave courage, they needed an outsider to be able to reinforce what the president was doing and to say, 
all right, who's your absolute most destructive person? And after 20 years of having the inmates run the asylum, they began to backbone up and deal with it. It's a long story about why they ended up in that place. Uh, they wanted to be able to fire those, but in order to keep it from being union, to keep it non-union, they thought they had to roll over and play dead. And so uh, long, you know, happens. And um, they just began to deal with the worst one, the most egregious one, because the secret to firing is making sure that the other employees see it as fair. If you fire somebody and the other employees don't believe it's fair, the other employees will lower their performance. The other employees have to buy into a firing. That's the tricky part to firing. And so take the most obvious one and deal with it. And people are then relieved and they began to get the hang of it. I remember about six months in, they said, okay, can we make a new list? Cause this is great. <laughs> I, you know, okay. Unless we, we come I had to calm them down a little bit. It's like, okay, good. Now that you have a taste for blood. <laughs> well, let me, let me, let me speak to both sides of the issue. I've been fired. Um, I, uh, well, I've been laid off. Um, and you know, I, I've had to, um, end people's, um, uh, employment for yeah. performance issues. Right. Especially in 2017, the economy's good. It's not that huge of a deal. It really isn't like getting, um, you're going to learn something about yourself. You're maybe going to get a different skill set. Um, you are not ending anybody's life. You're making the best decision for everybody. Um, you're the people who are staying are going to be happier. The person who's not any good at it, um, you're not doing a good, you're not holding their, you can't hold their hand for the rest of their lives. So you might as well rip the bandaid off uh, unless you're willing to have them move into your basement and feed them and, you know, um, make sure they pay their cell phone bill on time and make them a functional adult child. You can't hold your hand for the rest of their lives. So go ahead and just do it. Um, let's run through the rest of these um, simply because it's Saturday and I'm going to the beach. So go for it. <clears throat> Yeah, well, I don't live by a beach, and so um, you suck. The uh, um, your managers say the wrong things. Um, oh so what what does this look like for what, what what's that mean? It means that you know, and many managers said this way to me. I I don't know what to do with younger millennials. I finally figured out millennials your age, but I don't know what to do with younger millennials. And because they say the wrong thing, thinking they're communicating well. They're thinking, you know, I'm pretty good with, I'm pretty good with younger people. I got nephews. I'm pretty good with you. And these are the things they say when you interview, when you interview their folks, they're like, oh yeah, you know what? They're trying really hard, but it's the equivalent of not knowing you need to put your name on a new text message. Okay. To your um, point earlier. And so there's just a lot of little things like that, that if you don't fit, whoever fixes them first wins. And uh, now it's, um, you're, you're, you're going to decline if you can't keep and hire and motivate the right folks. And as a result, people don't want to stay. Um, but there's some things that organizations have to do to cut their generational turnover in half. And uh, um, they can do them. You can't control everything that cuts turnover, but you can cut generational turnover fairly quickly. And as a result, we can't hire the good ones. Um, some of that in manufacturing is ironic because manufacturing is what people, well, these manufacturing jobs are going. Most manufacturing companies are the ones that are struggling the most to find people who are reliable, who show up and do a good job. You know, and if so, I can jump in right there, um, you know, and th this is a different issue and, uh, you know, probably we're not going to have nearly as many people in manufacturing as the other industries listening to the podcast. However, just had lunch with a good friend this week, um, you know, who's in cold storage warehousing. And, and he said to me, you know, um, my employee base is, 
Eastern European immigrants and, you know, and Latin American immigrants. Um, and if uh, policy changes, um, like it's changing, he's like, I just don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. Like, I don't know how we're going to staff this thing. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's kind of like what everybody's going through right now, because white collar workers are are tough to get a hold of, just like blue collar workers are. In a good well, you know, Seth, so here's, so Japan had this happen, and that's what led to lean manufacturing. Toyota started lean manufacturing because um, their, their Xers did not want to work in manufacturing. They saw it as a step down. There wasn't any, as I say to clients, there's nothing to brag about when you're having a beer with your friends after work. And so, yeah, well, I put a mirror on really well today. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, 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 well, that's right. But so I'm talking to National Foundry Society and they're like, hey, we're, you know, we can't we can't get people who can reprint and weld. Well, the average person gets out, the average business major gets out of college making 44 to 48 a year, depending on where you live. The average person who can weld and read a print starts at 75,000 and can get a job anywhere. And so they're like, you know, we, we can't, and Mike Rowe's been making a big deal about this, yeah. that, but online, but the point is we can't find somebody to do it because they don't want to tell their friends, well, I'm a welder. Uh, and they said, you know, we even try to make it look like, look at all the money, look how, it, look how wonderful it is. I'm like, no, 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 no. You need to do just the opposite. You need to show sparks flying in your videos. They said, yeah, we do that because that is pretty cool. You got to show a lot of fire and then you basically say to them, you are the alchemist of the new world and not everybody can handle it. The Marines get a sword because the Marines are harder. Um, not everybody can handle this. We pay a lot of money and you'll always have a job because most people can't hack it. They said, it's funny. That's what Germany's doing with these kind of positions. They're basically saying most people are too big of babies to handle this. But if you got the chops, we got the money and it's an amazing career. Point is, there are ways to go after folks. Um, but most people don't know why the people they're talking to won't talk to them at a trade show or at a, at a job fair. Um, they don't know why. So they're guessing anyway, the, um, I know we got to get moving knowledge transfer. Boomers are leaving this time for real. There's been two times when people are like, Oh, we're losing our boomers. We got to do knowledge transfer. And then a recession comes along and the boomers quit retiring. But the boomers are finally old enough now that the oldest boomers are getting close to 70. They're like, dude, I'm done. I, I don't care if I don't have as much money in the bank as I thought I would have after these recessions. I'm done. And so the boomers are really retiring this time for real. And the knowledge is going out the door with them. And when the recession hit, organizations are like, we're not spending the money on all this knowledge transfer. Problem is we're still building knowledge transfer like we did 25 years ago with older employees pulling up a younger employee and putting their arm around their shoulder and passing on stories. And as a result, um, three quarters of the organizations admit that they're in real trouble with knowledge transfer. They're going to lose business and they're going to lose know-how and it's going to go to some younger firms where people figure out how to scoop it up. Um, and so what did you, you know, and I look at myself at 34 and this is, this is what so much I've done with you is text you what the heck do I do with this person? What the heck do I do with this situation? Um, it seems like younger employees actually do really want it. And like, yeah, how do, how do we fix that? Right? Like how do you fix this in your company? Um, you know, because I've heard it, I've heard it said both ways. I've heard some companies like, well, nobody's, you know, 
Um, nobody's invincible here. We'll go on without anybody. And it's like, well, that's true, but it might take you three or four or five years to get somebody ready for this. Then I've also heard it like, oh my gosh, well, if this person ever wasn't here, um, you know, like we, we don't know what we would do. Um, I mean, people do. Well, the reality is, you know, so the, so the good news is, um, most things that are contradictory are all partially true. Will your organization survive if you lose someone? Most organizations will. Some organizations are so vulnerable to specialized skills or a network of relationships that they go under if, if certain people left. On the other hand, um, there are large companies, I mean, multi-billion dollar companies that lose some key people who had some unique sets of skills. And it is really like losing uh, LeBron James. It is that kind of unique set of skills and things drop. Um, and I, I've seen organizations that lose about 200 million a year when they switch leaders because they get somebody that just doesn't have the leadership skills. And over a three year period of time, uh, their sales drop. And um, um, so there's a lot of truth in it both ways. And the point of it is, it takes seven years for what's called tacit knowledge. The knowledge that gets picked up outside of what you can pass along in a manual, just the knowledge, the inside knowledge of situations, the inside knowledge of your own organization, the inside knowledge of the customers you're working with. And that's what you can't pass on. And that's what takes seven years to build is what's called tacit knowledge or the inside track, the historical patterns, the knowing, the knowing what to do. Um, that's the part that's hard to transfer. And that's the part that organizations aren't transferring well. And if you can't keep your millennials, you're not going to transfer it well. And you know, if you, um, this is probably an example that's going to be different from a lot of people's professions, right? But I've, I've done a lot of work in PR. Um, part of the reason I've been able to be successful in that is because I just have this gut knowledge I haven't even written down on like how I do things like, you know, I've been able to place, you know, stories in, you know, that have made it to CNN and sports illustrated. And, um, I know that that's a different message than what I need to say to ABC in Chicago to get a morning show TV interview. Right. Um, and if you ask me how I know how to do that, like subconsciously, I figured out what each one of them are looking for and I know who to talk to. Right. And it's not like I can do it every time. Um, and you know, I'm running my own company, so it's like, I can do it. Right. Um, but as I look at, like, I can't do everything forever all the time and grow the company. Right. How do I, um, how do I transfer that knowledge into like somebody else who could start to learn that? Sir, you have put it exactly. That is exact. You, you've expressed precisely what organizations are struggling with. How do I take what my best performers have in their gut? and translate it into something that other people can learn. Yeah, because um, yeah. I, I really can't tell you, like if you asked me to write a manual right now, you said, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna flip you 5,000 bucks by Monday, tell, you, tell me, uh, okay, fine, maybe, that, maybe that my knowledge is worth more than that. For 50,000 bucks by Monday, have a five page outline for me um, for how you had been successful in PR. I don't know if I can just write it down right now. Um, no, you couldn't because most of the people who are, the most of the people who are really good just know what to, to go back to sports, know what to do when they have the ball in their hand, but they can't explain it as well. Michael Jordan was not a good teacher. He, when he was, when he was trying to help coach out there with the wizards, he actually got on the floor and started playing because he didn't know how to explain what he did. So then he tried to show him and then he just went, all right, let me just play. 
because the people who know what to do can't break it down and explain it. You literally have to find somebody, uh, somebody else to break it down. Those people can have other people pull it from them, but they can't do it. It's one of the reasons why sports teams pay for sports psychologists, because when they get stuck, they can't break it down and figure out what to do to get unstuck. It makes those people especially valuable because they know how to pull it out of highly effective, highly successful people's heads and help them unravel what's getting in the way now. And so bottom line of it is, if, if, if somebody said to you, let's say you're working in a company, because um, you know, nobody's going to, you know, you're not going to give yourself a $5,000 bonus to write your own manual. But yeah. let's say somebody said to you, all right, I'll give you $5,000 bonus to put everything you know down on paper. You would have to take 3000 of that and go hire somebody to ask you the right questions and help you write it up in a way that would translate it for somebody else because you couldn't even explain it well because mere mortals would stare back and go, so go back over it again. What would you say to CNN versus a local radio station? And you would go, seriously, I've already explained this three times. I know, but how would you know the difference here? And then you would get a little line between your eyebrows and then you'd have homicidal fantasies and you would want to kill your coworkers. <laughs> And one of the points of this podcast is you to not want to kill your coworkers. Right? And that's the goal we're trying to avoid. Um, and so when companies ask people who just know to do knowledge transfer, they're actually inviting them to have homicidal fantasies because when they do write it down, mere mortals don't understand it. And then they get really frustrated because they're like, how stupid are you? And then like Michael Jordan, they're out playing rather than coaching because they just get so frustrated when the rest of us can't pick it up quickly enough. Um, okay, so let's solve this problem. And then this podcast is going to be a great example of work-life balance because we're going to have to finish up the last three after the interview of episode two. Um, because I live in Wisconsin and, and summer is like six hours long here. I mean, <laughs> fall, like fall actually happens at 7 p.m. tonight. <laughs> so get into like, I'm, you, you took us to the place of despair. I'm like, oh my gosh, now, now what do I do? <laughs> like, am I just dead? Um, how do you do knowledge transfer? If so it really is pretty easy. And I gave, I, I kind of gave the, the answer in that illustration. You find your best performing folks and you stop asking them to write it down because they can't. And what they write down is inactionable by most other people. Okay. And, and you also can't have them just randomly talk to people or they're going to get frustrated. So where's the, where's the solution? You bet. So you have people who help extract that information from them and then translate it for average people. Now, some organizations do that well and other organizations um, do not. And then you have the best folks give stories that other people can learn from. The best folks need to have need to tell stories of how I landed this deal, and then somebody else pulls the principles from those stories, and they get turned into tacit knowledge. Because tacit knowledge is, how did you know to do that instead of that? That, my friend, is the secret sauce of passing on knowledge. And it usually, in, in the olden days, it happened by putting one person with another person, experienced salesperson, junior salesperson, and they'd work that same large account for two years until the junior salesperson knew all of those. How did you know to do that? Okay. Um, so it's actually not as terrifying as... It's not as, as terrifying at all. It is updating the fact that you are, most companies aren't going to pay to have for two years or to have the same, two different salespeople on one account. 
They're just not, they don't have the, the cost models to do that anymore. And so as a result, the old systems are broken and we need to translate what works into new organizational structure with thinner ranks of employees and to speed up the process. Plus, younger generations are FAQ folks. They really do wanna see more in writing and more in video. They really do glaze over when the old guy starts telling grasshopper stories. Okay, Kung Fu, <laughs> let me tell you grasshopper. And then they're like, shut up, old man, get to the point. At least, at least that's the look you give me. You know, <laughs> I don't think that's true. Um, you know, and if I can just add this maybe small note, uh, as somebody who's worked in a lot of different kinds of organizations, especially if you have a larger organization, um, you need to be thinking about doing a podcast and a video series as an intranet. Like seriously. Um, yes, like seriously. Seriously. Get your CEO, get your top people, get your smartest people that, you know, Every organization's got somebody that they can walk into the room and, and every employee knows I'm going to leave feeling like I can do this, feeling better about my job. My gosh, package that. Give it to them on email every week. It, it costs you nothing. Um, you know, one of the ways I was able to grow my, um, the podcast I do on my own to um, 20,000 listens in the first 10 weeks is I actually do like cell phone videos while driving, um, which you check your local laws. Um, but I just put cell phone um, on, you know, on the dash of my car. I hit record. I drive down the interstate. I talk about something for 10 minutes. I upload it when I get to Wi-Fi. Um, it, it costs leaders so little to do a 10 minute off the cuff video where they just pass down wisdom, pass down tactics, pass down knowledge. Um, and you can deliver that for free. Uh, it is so dang easy. Well, Seth, I just, uh, um, to talk to the other side of that, you just said off the cuff. And that's what freaks out companies. Because when the CEO, well, what freaks out the, what, what freaks out the entire administration is when Donald Trump tweets and they don't know what he's tweeted until they see it when everybody else does. And okay. so uh, it's the off the cuff stuff that freaks out large companies because many CEOs, have caused real waves of challenge for managers by saying something off the cuff that gets interpreted in some different ways. So most executive communications are so handled and so screened. <clears throat> I've, worked with, I've worked with senior executives who are very compelling, but when they speak, they've been so scripted that they basically look like automatons, soulless automatons, and it's because of that scripting process. So to be fair, we need a lot more informal but we also need the ability to edit out the times they say stuff they shouldn't say. And um, that's really the secret sauce, my friend. They go live, they talk, they've somebody got their talking might. points, and then somebody for uh, somebody very cheaply, it's not very expensive, goes through and edits like other podcasters do when they lose it, and they edit it out so they don't lose their audience. It's the exact same thing. It's just most people in internal communications haven't worked outside and most executives and most leadership teams and most legal uh, offices are really freaked out at the thought the executive may get recorded saying things. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up there. Um, episode number two, we're going to go ahead and, and jump back in uh, a week from today. Probably a little bit more structure here, but... Um, I hope not, but keep going. <laughs> you hope not. <laughs> so the recap, the recap here is um, you got to learn to talk to the different generations like, um, like they want to be talked to. Uh, if you're a leader, you can be doing a lot more probably to talk to your employees right where they're at, um, maybe with your cell phone between meetings. Um, and um, the third thing is 
if you have a, like a rock in your stomach right now, you probably need to fire somebody uh, within the next 48 hours or how long or ever it takes you to get it worked out with HR. Uh, 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 fill out your, talk to HR, fill your paperwork out and then deal with the rock in your stomach. But yes, I, I, I agree in principle with what Seth is saying. And if you're, um, if you're doing our, you know, reverse fantasy draft of your 10 worst employees, for goodness sakes, um, do mind the whiteboard that it gets fully erased and doesn't have the uh, <laughs> line left. 